0: I have decided for Father's Day to let everybody out on time today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, promise is only good if you keep it, huh? That's our plan anyway. Hey, I got a couple of uh, quick announcements. A little bird flew in and told me that today, Father's Day of all days, is someone's 40th anniversary. So, since you know who you are, won't you stand up so we can honor you? Yes, that would be you too. (laughs) Congratulations. No better way to spend it than with me, huh? (laughs) No, that later. Okay. Also, a Little Bird told me that uh, it might be uh, uh, Rebecca's, uh, Rebecca Pappick's last... Is this your last Sunday before you go to India? So you know the drill, sister. You've got to come up. So we're going we're gonna to lay hands on her and pray for her. She's going uh, on a mission trip in India, and uh, we want her to go with God's blessing. So if you'd like to come up as part of her church family and lay hands on her, we want to invite you to do that, and we'll pray for you. Is that okay? You don't mind, do you? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you. We lift up Rebecca to you, God, and we just pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with her. Father, we pray, God, that, Lord, you would help her as she travels, Lord, that you give her traveling mercies, Father, but we also pray, God, for the opportunities you're going to give her as she serves for a month, Lord. We pray that you would give her open doors and the strength she needs to walk through it, Father, and that she would see your... Uh, spirit move in a mighty, mighty way as she goes in faithfulness to the call that you've laid on her heart. God, we pray for your special blessing, your special anointing, Father God, your uh, just amazing touch. Be with her now and always, God, as we put her in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say it. Amen. 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 Well, as you guys are headed back to your seats, when you get there, grab your Bibles. And we're going to be taking a look, continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. So we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, We'll probably pick it up today somewhere around verse 17. Um, But as we take a look, I want to remind us what's going on. Jesus, we remember just prior was doing all these incredible things. He was healing the sick. He was, he was making the blind to see. And people and his fame, people were following him, and his fame was, was at its highest point. And he went to this mountain as the people followed him. He sat down with his disciples sitting around him, and then he taught them. The Sermon on the Mount, this teaching, was a teaching that he would bring to the disciples more than one time. More than one time he would share this concept because this concept from the Messiah, the king that was to come, is announcing to the people, here is the requirement to enter into my kingdom. Here's the requirement to be part of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Here's what uh, will be necessary. And and last time we talked about the, the truth that he laid out for us about how it is that we can be happy. You can go and pay all kind of money to sit down with somebody for 30 minutes at a shot and let them try to tell you the secret to being happy. Or you can go to Matthew chapter 5 and read the Beatitudes. For each one begins with that phrase, Oh, how happy. Oh, how happy is the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy is he who mourns. Oh, how happy. As it goes through each one of these Beatitudes, speaking to us about the attitudes that we ought to have as followers of Christ, as His disciples, as those who have given their life to Him. But even more than that, the understanding that this is the key to really experiencing the joy in life, to having that, that ability to celebrate what God is doing in us and through us and for us. And so we closed out as we finished up the Beatitudes and we talked about then As we move from that place, understanding that God's called us to be two things, salt and light. Salt will arrest corruption. If something is corrupting, salt won't cure it. Salt won't turn back the clock and take away corruption. But salt will stop it. Salt will stop the progression. And so you and I called to be the salt of the earth. That we would halt the the corruption of the enemy simply by being who Jesus Christ is calling us to be. And then he goes on and tells us that we're to be the light of the world. The light of the world. He lays it out both both individually and corporately. Corporately, he describes us as a city on a hill. And we all know on those dark nights and you're coming coming down out of the mountains, you see a, a city off in the distance. We can see it for a long ways. And that's that call corporately, the body of Christ, to be that light that says to the people, "Hey, there's a safe place to stop. A safe place to find what you're looking for, to dispel the darkness and help us enter into the kingdom of light, individually in our own lives, the same way that our lives would be light. And it shouldn't be that we have to announce it to everyone. I'm light. If we have to announce it, chances are you're wrong. <laughs> they should be able to see it. To be able to see that light that's within us. It's simply a matter of allowing Jesus Christ to shine through us. And then he closes out that idea in verse 16. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So let that light of Jesus Christ moving through your life just drive you to do the things that god's calling you to do so that men would see that which you do but not that they would see you and there is the challenge that men would see your good works but glorify your father in heaven a lot of times people see our good works and glorify us A lot of times people will see what we do and give us thanks and all those things. But God is saying, hey guys, live your life in such a way that your good works that flow out of your life, people are going to see Jesus through you. They want to glorify God for what you've done, who you are, what you're being. And the secret to that is, it's not of us. It's of Him. It's simply living a life surrendered to Him surrendered and allowing God to move and work through us, not trying to work something up, not trying to to put together a list of do's and don'ts, but simply being being in Christ Jesus and allowing that Jesus Christ to flow through us, that light to go into the world. So as Jesus brings his teaching uh, to the the crowd that's around, as he's teaching his disciples, people are going to naturally wonder because they were taught to wonder if a man comes in and he does these great works and he does healings and miracles but he begins to teach you some other gospel some other thing to follow some other god then you're to to just shun him so jesus says that people are wondering that question okay he's doing great things and he's he's telling us all these good things but But what's he really about? Then Jesus begins to tell him in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now when the scripture talks about the law and the prophets, there are three different things that the Jewish mind would go to. First off, the law would go immediately to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. But the law could also refer to especially when it's assigned with the Law and the Prophets, the entire Old Testament. But there's a third division of the Law that Jesus is going to begin addressing in a moment, and that third division of the Law was the Oral Law. The Oral Law, the the Mishnah, the Talmud, it's when the rabbis would get together and tell you and I, the common people, what the Law means. Because we're not smart enough to know what does it mean to carry a burden on the Sabbath. So they'd get together, this group of guys, and they would tell us what a burden was. What constituted a burden? You could carry enough honey to put to dress one wound. You could carry a thimble, but you couldn't carry the needle and thread. Now, why would you even talk about stuff like that? I mean, why would you sit around and say, I wonder what constitutes a burden i know whatever burdens you constitutes a burden who cares the 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 measurement and so that was the oral law the oral law taught by the scribes and the pharisees and so jesus is going to focus in on that but before he does he says don't think that i came to abolish the old testament i didn't come to abolish it i came to fulfill it because the old testament is speaking of him It's all pointing to him, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, everything from Genesis through Malachi is pointing to Jesus Christ and the work that he's going to do. So he says, I didn't come to destroy, but fulfill for assuredly, I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till it is all till it all is fulfilled the jot is the iota or iota it's the it's that you ever heard people say not one iota well one iota is like a dot above the i that little dot so jesus saying not one jot not one dot not one iota will pass from the law and then he says not one tittle the tittle was the the brush mark in the letters that that would make the difference between an o and a q or a c and a g It's that one small little brush mark that makes a difference between a P and an R. And so he's saying none of these things, not even the most minute thing is going to pass away from the law until it's all fulfilled. The promises that God gave will be accomplished. And Jesus said, now I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill it. And when he talks about fulfilling it, This is what he's talking about, that everything in the Old Testament look forward to the Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the end of the law. According to Romans 10.4, he fulfills it and transcends it. So Jesus Christ is saying, hey, I am what the Old Testament was pointing to. And you're going to be able to have that opportunity to see that this is what exactly what Jesus is talking about. A guy named uh, Clark, Adam Clark, he was uh, around in the 1800s. This is what he wrote. I wanted to share it with you. In a word, Christ completed the law, first in itself. It was only the shadow, the typical representation of good things to come. And he added to it that which was necessary to make it perfect, his own sacrifice, without which it could neither satisfy God nor sanctify men. Secondly, he completed it in himself by submitting to its types and an exact obedience and verifying them by his death upon the cross. Thirdly, he completes the law and the sayings of the prophets in his members by giving them grace to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind and strength and their neighbor as themselves. For this is all the law and the prophets. So this is the work that Messiah came to do. And they picture it as the disciples are sitting around him and perhaps thousands are gathered below on the hill listening to the words that he has to say. He begins to continue to teach him, And he says this, Whosoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the whole counsel of God's word is so important that if you were to read it and say, well, this is a little thing. It's no big deal. And you just kind of push it off as though it doesn't matter. He's saying that that makes you least in the kingdom of heaven because you are treating the word of God as though it doesn't matter. But if you'll take that word and you apply it, the whole counsel, all that God is laying out, he says, oh, that you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. God wants us to recognize that he desires that we would follow the word that he lays out for us, that we would make that move to be who God's calling us to be, that we would say, hey. Not even the little points, not even the little things. Now, I'm not saying that we're to obey the sacrificial system and the laws because we see those things fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he lays out for us a direction we should go. But I am saying it should all matter to us. Every piece. I hear people all the time say, well, the Bible's written so long ago, you know, it it can't really uh, address us today. Well, you're treating it like it doesn't matter. And it does have something to tell us today. We may not like what it has to say, but that doesn't make it any less true. So he desires that we would give, that we would give it that due honor. For if they ignore the least, then they'll be the least. But if they give honor, then they'll find that place of honor. And then he shocks them all. In verse 20 he says... For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The most righteous people on the planet, according to their mindset, were the scribes and Pharisees. These guys were it. I mean, the Pharisees had the Old Testament memorized. They were able to quote it for you. But more important to them than the Old Testament would be their oral traditions. And the scribes were the same way. They were looked at to be very religious. Very righteous. Especially externally. But Jesus Christ is going to lay out for us here. In this final section in chapter 5. To let us know that God cares about the heart. Not just the outward action. That the motives of your heart. Can make a man A sinner, even if the outside looks clean. You remember later on we're going to see Jesus talking to the Pharisees and he calls them something. He calls them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You can make a tomb look real nice on the outside, painted up all whitewashed. It looks nice and new. But it doesn't change the fact that inside is all kinds of corruption. And so Jesus, as he looks to the people who think... The scribes and the Pharisees are the best because they can see the outside. Jesus is going to take the law to them to the nth degree. And as he does so, he's going to literally go point by point through their oral traditions, the teachings of the Pharisees, and teach the people that God, to God, the heart is very important. What's happening within the heart, what's going on, within the heart so he begins in verse 21 he says you have heard that it was said understand that you have heard that it was said this is a direct uh, addressing of the oral traditions of the scribes and pharisees he did not say you have seen that it is written he said you have heard that it is said so he's pointing to those Oral traditions that follow along. I'm not saying they're not part of the Ten Commandments, but you'll see it as we go on. You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the counsel. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. The Lord says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. And I've heard people all the time tell me, oh, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus said, if you've been angry in your heart, that word for angry is a word for malice. It means an anger that you nurture and keep alive. An anger that you aren't able to overcome. It's just always seething jesus said then you've committed murder in your heart he says you are guilty of judgment that judgment is divine judgment that first judgment he speaks of that divine judgment because in your heart is murder already see jesus says yeah i understand that people say on the outside it looks good but we all know what happens on the inside don't we we all know those people that we've got grief with and we just can't, it just irks us. That's that seething anger. And the Lord says, that's sin. That's not okay. He says, if you call your brother Raka, Raka would be like saying to your brother, you idiot. It was a, a, term, a derogatory term, not like goofing around with somebody, but just really putting them down. Really putting them down. And the Lord is, is even drawn into that. Man, if you put him down, you're in danger of the council going before maybe the Sanhedrin or being brought before the city gates for the way that you're treating, the way you're reacting to your brother. Well, how are you reacting? You're reacting out of the hatred that's in your heart. It's just coming out. And then he says, if you say, you fool. And that word you fool is an interesting word. It comes up one other time uh, as, we, as we go back to its Hebrew roots to a guy named Moses. You guys remember Moses? He's the one that brought the law, right? And there was this guy at this, this time when Moses was talking to the people. He was so ticked at them. He was so angry at the, what a pain they were being. And the Lord said to him, Moses, I want you to go down, speak to the rock, That that rock would give the people water. And Moses is seething with anger. Because the people have been complaining for his entire life. And he just has had enough. And so he stands before the people and he says, Must I give you water out of this rock, you rebels? That word, you rebels, is the same word. "more." you rebels and then he struck the rock and water came from the rock and watered the people but what did God say God said Moses you have misrepresented me I wasn't angry with the people but you have represented it as though I was angry and you broke my type you struck the rock I told you to speak to the rock so Moses was held outside of the promised land, not able to take the people in. Why is that important? Because Moses represents the law. And the law can never bring us in to the promised land. Who brought the children of Israel in? Joshua. Interesting, right? Joshua is a Hebrew name for Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus that brings us in, that completes the law. So here he's given a teaching on the law. If you have anger in your heart, this malice, this slow-burning anger within you, or you're calling people names where you're striking out at people, or, or where you even come to a point where you're misrepresenting God because of this frustration, Jesus is saying you have committed murder in your heart. So that which is inside of you should taint that which is on the outside. Therefore, he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Don't miss that. If you're bringing your gift to the altar, if you're coming to the place of prayer, the altar was the brazen altar that was right outside the tabernacle. They would bring their sacrifice to that brazen altar. The brazen altar is a picture of the cross. And as they come before that brazen altar in that place of prayer where you would lay your hands upon that sacrifice and confess your sins, and the Lord says, and it comes to your mind that your brother has something against you. He said, leave your gift. Leave that that sacrifice there. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, And then come and offer your gift. First, be reconciled to your brother. Relationship is more important to God than religious duty. Here they're all doing the things that they're supposed to do. They're bringing that that offering to the Lord. But God says, if you come to that place of prayer, and there you remember, you know, me and someone else, we're not okay. There's issue. And you find that issue in the place of prayer, and that's key. It's in the place of prayer. The Bible doesn't say to react when you feel like somebody's done you wrong or any of those other things. We'll get to that a little bit later. But here when you're at the altar, when you're at the altar, when you're at the place of prayer, when you're coming before the Lord and God lays on your heart, I got a problem. There's a, a distance between me and another brother or sister. The Lord says, "Don't offer your gift. Don't offer your worship. Don't offer your sacrifice." Go be reconciled to your brother. A lot of times, when we're struggling in relationship, relating to the Lord God, relating to Him, it may be that we have that that fire of anger burning within us, consuming us, driving out that love of God that's within us, and making us dry and just a drag. And God says, when you find that in your place of prayer, go be reconciled to your brother. Go and be the peacemaker. Remember, blessed are, oh, how happy is the peacemaker. The one who binds brothers together. And this is the attitude that Jesus says. Agree, then in verse 25, with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him. Now, I want you to understand, in Old Testament times, there was no police. Wouldn't that be great? Well, in some ways. I wouldn't have to be looking in a rearview mirror all the time. I could just go. I would, Rusty wouldn't be hiding behind some bush somewhere, waiting <laughs> to pop out and get me. There was no police. So if you had a problem with a brother... With you had a problem with someone else, it was up to you to go get him and bring him to the council. Bring him to the city gates and deal with your problem. Somebody stiffed you. Somebody done something wrong. So the Bible is saying, now if you are with your adversary, so it's saying that this person has something against you. He's come and he's found you and you're headed to the city gates. God says, make your peace with him while you're on the way. Don't wait for somebody else to have to solve the problem. Don't wait for somebody else to have to pour into the situation. We all know what is required to make peace. I'll tell you right now, if you want to know what's required to make peace, die to yourself. Lay down your hurt, your selfishness, the the issues. And you may have every right to be angry, but lay it down. Why? Because in Philippians 2... It tells us that we are to have the mind of Christ who being in the very form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God but he made himself of no reputation. We're following the example of Jesus Christ who did not cling to his rights. When we read the book of Revelation we often look at the seven letters to the seven churches. The word for Laodicea means the people's rights clinging to my right what makes it right i'm hold on to that because i'm not ever going to do nothing to make peace with my adversary because i am right well we all know what it is that the lord says about the church of laodicea right i will spew you out of my mouth when we come next week we're going to do the lord's prayer you remember what it says at the end of the lord's prayer We call out to be forgiven our trespasses. And then what did Jesus say? If you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. For oh, how happy are the merciful, those who extend mercy. Mercy by definition is something someone else doesn't deserve. So while you're on your way with your adversary, while you're walking with him to the city gates, before he delivers you to the judge, says, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. So before you go to court, before you get thrown into prison, make peace. Make peace. Make peace. For blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, oh, how happy are those who desire to make peace, whose desire is that there would be peace between brethren. That's who we want to be. So, Jesus, talking about their oral law and the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit murder, but he tells us what God means when he says that. It does not just what you do on the outside. But it's also what you do on the inside. Scripture goes on to tell us then, in verse 27, "...you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery." Again, you have heard it said to those of old. Here's the teaching on this side of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Here's the word of God. Let me tell you, Jesus says, what the word of God really means. They have their concept, the scribes and Pharisees, but Jesus, the Son of God, is going to tell you what is really meant. I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus said if you look at a woman to lust... Now, he's not talking about a glance. He's talking about that just like we were before when we were talking about anger. We were talking about that anger that you're feeding that you're allowing to live within you. Here, he's talking about that lust that is within you. And when you look at this person you're feeding, allowing that lust to grow. And Jesus says, when you've done that, when you've looked, though you haven't gone out and, and committed the act outwardly, according to God, you're guilty because that's what's in your heart. Folks, if that's what's in your heart, listen, It's only a matter of time before that's what's on the outside. And you're trying to paint whitewash over it so that nobody knows. So on the inside, Jesus says, when you look, when this occurs to you, you've already committed it within your heart. And listen, this doesn't just speak of adultery. It's anything that we could covet. For the scripture laid out for us one law out of the Ten Commandments that dealt with the inside, and that was thou shalt not covet. Now, it's hard to see when somebody else is coveting, isn't it? You know, I come pulling into the parking lot this morning, and I, I, I could have almost coveted. I could have almost. If it had been a brand new Harley, it would have been a lot harder for me. But a brother got a brand new truck. And praise God that, they, that they've been blessed and had the opportunity to do that. We've got to learn that, that covet takes place inside, right? Nobody else can see it happen. You could drive by and, Boop, I just coveted. Paul said, the law taught me that coveting is sin. It's a, it's a sin of idolatry. It's wanting something that I don't have. It's putting that, that thing, whatever it is, in that primary place. Jesus said, when you look at it, to lust after it. You've already done it your heart is just showing you it's wickedness the wickedness that is already within you and so he goes on in that concept he says so then if your right eye causes you to sin pluck it out and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell so we should see a lot of one-eyed guys in a in about a week, right? <laughs> Here's what the scripture is talking about, guys. He's saying, if your eyes are leading you into sin, do something drastic. Cut it out. Stop it. If we're struggling and with the imaginations of our heart based on the things that we're allowing into our eye gate, God says, then whatever that is, cut it off. There are some guys who are, who are struggling through, through different things, perhaps with pornography. But then when you talk to them about, hey, maybe you ought to turn that computer off, unplug it, throw it in the garage, chuck it, get rid of it. Well, I can't live without my computer. Really. Maybe some guys are struggling with alcohol, but they want to spend every day hanging out with their buddies at the bar. And they wonder why they struggle. If your eye is leading you into sin, do whatever you need to do to cut it out. Take drastic action. If you've got to turn off the cable, turn off the cable. The Lord says it's better for you to go without that little thing than for this sin to drag you through the gutter all the way to the end. So let it go. Put it away. Turn it off. We're free in Christ. Sure you are. But your freedom is not to be used as a means of strapping you down to some sin. It's to be used as a means of drawing close to the Lord. I'm free to be in Christ. To walk with him. To be who God's calling me to be. So poke those eyes out. Get rid of them. Turn it off. Turn off the TV. Turn off the music. Whatever it is. That's feeding into your mind these things, this covetness, this idea of lusting, desiring for other things. In verse 30 he says, "If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for the whole body to be cast into hell." Same thing. if your right hand is leading you into sin. The things that you're doing are causing you to stumble. Then God says, cut it out. Do surgery. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. There's a lot of things in my life that that prior in in, in days past, I really enjoyed. I thought they were neat and and a great time. And I would have defended my right to be able to participate in those things all the way to the end. But you know, I discovered something. When I participated in those things, I began to struggle with lust. When I participated in those things, I began to struggle with doing things that I know God was calling me not to do. Being angry, being frustrated. And I could hear the Lord speaking, but it wasn't very loud because I had all this other noise in my head at the time. And God would say, you need to get rid of that. And my Holy Spirit, otherwise known as Kathy... a lot of times would sound just like God. Which is enough to tick off any man. When the Lord's whispering in your heart, you know, I think you should get rid of that. And then, out of nowhere, your wife comes up and says, you know, I wish you'd get rid of that. Okay, I have to listen to God, but I don't know about this with you. And I kick and scratch and claw, but realize that all the while... That thing is holding me back from experiencing everything that God has for me. And that thing, whatever it is, isn't worth it. I don't want to trade it for the Lord. So out it goes. Cut it off. Get it out of your life. Those things that are pulling you back into a life of sin... And it's going to start here, right? It's going to start here. nobody might not even see it on your face. But you know it in your heart. And God wants us to deal with it. He wants us to take care of it. In verse 31, he goes on. Furthermore, it has been said. Here we go again. Furthermore, it has been said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Man, we hate these verses. Especially these days. We don't like them. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to deal with it because the bottom line is We don't really want to apply those things to our real life, right? We want to say, well, you know, that's what the Bible said then, but today it's all okay. But if we just turn our Bibles to the left a few pages, we come to the final book of the Old Testament. That final book is the book of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, this is what the Lord says. Now, this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so that he does not regard your offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. So you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. The Lord laid out. This is God's design. And this is the purpose. I'm not laying any heavy trip, So don't panic and run out yet. Wait till I get to the end. But the point is. Listen. Marriage is a big deal to God. It's not just a little thing. Marriage is a big deal. And it matters to Him that you understand that going in. Now there were a couple of schools of thought at the time when Jesus is giving this teaching. There were three rabbis who had a concept of when a divorce was okay. And this is what those three rabbis had to say. The first one, his name is Shammai. And he took the hardest line of all. He said, divorce is only allowable for adultery. Then you had the school of Hillel. Hillel said... Uh, uh, he was more liberal. He allowed divorce for a wide range of things, including ruining a man's dinner. Then you had Rabbi Akiba, who allowed divorce if you saw someone who was better suited to you than the wife that you already have. And this is the way they were getting divorced. Folks, there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible says that. We didn't invent divorce these days. (coughs) We may be having more than we had in times past, but since the 70s, we've held that just a little bit above 50% of divorces or of, of marriages ending in divorce. A bit above 50%. The sad thing is, we see the same thing within the church. Remember, I began at the beginning and Jesus was talking about the law, and he said, if you take the least of the commands and you treat it like it's the least then you'll be the least if you'll accept the word of god as having authority in your life then you're going to experience the best the best that that god has for you and that's what jesus is laying out for them he, he chooses the camp he says this is god's heart now listen in the old testament a letter of divorce was given through Moses to the people. And we're going to talk a little bit more about it. When we get to chapter 19, it was given because of the hardness of their hearts. But this is the law to the nth degree, right? This is God saying, this is my requirement to be in my kingdom. This is a requirement. Remember your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, right? And what it's leading people to is I am required to give a righteousness that I cannot produce. For which Paul would say to you and I that he who knew no sin became sin that we might become his righteousness. When Jesus was saying you need to have a righteousness better than that of the scribes and Pharisees. He's speaking of that we're to have better in, in, in kind. Better in kind. Not better performance. Not that we look better on the outside. But listen, the scripture lays out for us in Philippians 3, 6 through 9. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, Paul said, I was blameless. But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ." But indeed I count all things lost, that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of God. Because we need His righteousness. And that's what He did for us on the cross. Unfortunately, whenever we talk about divorce, there's always issues that come up. And there have been places and times where churches have treated that as though it was the unpardonable sin. The scripture doesn't say all sin will be forgiven man except divorce. Right? Here's what the scripture, here's what we really want to be able to To pull away, what we really want to be able to understand is that we cannot look at divorce without considering the grace of God and including that grace. For God is not a a master to the law, desiring or wanting to bring his people forcefully into broken submission. God is forgiving. God is loving. He wants his people to experience joy. And he wants them to experience that joy in their lives. And this can only be done only through the grace of forgiveness. Through the grace of forgiveness. We have to be able to experience that grace. Jesus bore all our sins, even divorce. They have been paid for. And on the day of judgment... He will not bring them up again. But I, whenever I talk about it, I I'll never forget a counseling appointment years ago Kathy and I had with a with a couple that were struggling, and <clears throat> there were definitely some big issues that they needed to deal with. And I remember the the wife saying to me, "You know, I know what God's word says." And I know what God wants me to do, but I don't care. I won't do it. And she left. To me, that's a scary position to take. I mean, that that scares me. I'm not trying to make a judgment on her. and But... I think there are things in our life that God says, hey, I want you to walk in obedience to this. I want you to to give due credence to what my word says. And how do I say on one hand, I believe, and I've entrusted the weight of my life into the hands of my Savior, and at the same time say, but I will not obey. I will not agree. I will not submit. I will not whatever to what God's trying to do. It's a scary place to be. And so Jesus here, as he lays this out, folks, his point is, there's only one way to get into the kingdom of heaven, right? Through the grace, forgiveness, and mercy of Jesus Christ. Placing our faith in him and receiving a righteousness that I cannot produce within myself. But he also desires. He also desires that we treat his word. With the respect that that word deserves. Now keep in mind Jesus purpose of this and this teaching in chapter 19 when we get there. Is not to give us the all inclusive list of when divorce is okay. I'm not trying to say there aren't cases when there that that it should be all right. The scripture is very clear in some of those places. But. God's best for our life would require us to stay faithful to the one we promised to stay faithful to. Well, what do I do, Jackie? I'm already past that. Now what do I do? Stay faithful to the one you promised with right now. God doesn't want us to break one covenant to renew another. He wants us to give honor to the covenants we've made. Keep your vows before the Lord. Amen? Isn't that what God wants from us? He wants us to keep our vows before the Lord. Now, Scripture goes on. Just one last thing. Again, you have heard it said that that to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor should you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Here's a game that the scribes and Pharisees would play. If they swore by the name of God, they had to keep it. But if they swore by something less than the name of God, then they could rip somebody off. Oh, I I promise this is my best deal. I swear by Jerusalem. But I didn't swear by the temple, because the temple is a place of God. So I can lie, because I only swore by Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, listen, I don't care what those knuckleheads say. Don't swear by anything, because it all belongs to God. Jerusalem is his city. The earth is his footstool. The heavens are his throne. Everything belongs to him. So simply do this. Just say yes, and be yes. Or just say no and be no. Don't rip one another off. Don't make everything look good on the outside and make all these loopholes. Jesus said no loopholes. Be truthful. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I don't ever want you to swear or make an oath. Because we can go through just through the gospels and see Jesus himself take an oath when he's brought before the Sanhedrin. We'll see Paul do the same thing. He's not talking about not ever having to take a note based on the concept of the government that you're within. But what he is saying is be truthful. Stop trying to find a loophole so that you can say, I swear by this, I swear by my mother's grave, but because I didn't swear by my father's grave and it's, and it's, and it's Father's Day today, then it didn't count. Or I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Every kid plays that game, right? Jesus says... Let your yes be yes. And let your no be no. Mean what you say. This is his requirement. Chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is his requirement to enter into his kingdom. His manifesto. And what it should drive us to is this. I am required to bring a righteousness that I cannot produce. That righteousness is found by faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just come before you. We give you thanks. We thank you for just an opportunity to see Lord God... And understand your requirement for us. And that that requirement, that law, the Old Testament and all its pictures drive us to you. You're the answer. You're the answer to our lack of righteousness. You're our answer when we're struggling with anger. We're struggling with lust. Or we're struggling with coveting. Or we're struggling with truthfulness. We would understand that God requires a, a great amount from us even greater than we are able to produce with our sin nature. So you became our sin sacrifice. You paid the price. You who were sinless, you bore the price that I would have been required to pay. And now by faith, I place my trust in you and you make me clean. I don't have to whitewash myself. I don't have to try to pretend. You set me free from the burden of the law, but then you send me back to the law that I might know the nature of God. That this is the, these are the things that God desires. And that I might submit myself to you. That I might live my life for you. Not in some kind of Guilt not out of some kind of strange ideal that I'm going to try to earn your love. It's just my response to you. When you and I were enemies, you loved me to the uttermost. God, I just want to live my life now saying to you, as a result of you setting me free, that I love you with all my heart, soul mind and strength that i want to keep your word that i want to take your word and make it a part of my life and say lord i do this because i love you because i trust you because i believe lord god we just pray your blessing father as we seek that anointing that touch from you god we ask that you would uh, Just move among us in a mighty, mighty way as we give you all the praise and the glory, Father. On this Father's Day, may we not only honor our earthly Father, but may we never forget our heavenly Father. We give you thanks in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.